Well, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to uh, Romans 15. Uh, so we're second to last uh, week on the book of Romans, and we'll be going into a summer series of uh, various topics that I think we're still trying to flesh out. So be in prayer for that. Obviously, you can talk to some of the teachers here um, about topics you're interested in and series you're interested in, and we'll entertain those and pray about those. Um, the top of your outline there, you'll see that I'm, I'm today I'm kind of breaking it into three sections, and really just two of those I'll really touch on. A lot of details in there we can't really flesh out. And what I'll try to do is just maybe entertain a couple questions throughout, but try to save some good time at the end, because we won't have time for, to discuss all this, and we'll try to figure out which direction you really want to go. The first uh, section there is really a continuation of last week, uh, of chapter 14, and what it means to, to love your brother uh, in light of Christian liberty. And then uh, there's a kind of a long passage there that we could break up even more, but this this uh, um, the whole idea of Paul being an apostle to the Gentiles, but how he ties that to the promises to the patriarchs, and what that means for world missions even today. And then what re- Paul really starts to do is conclude the letter. In 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 many ways, you could stop the letter after this chapter, and so this is kind of your summary chapter of a lot of content. What you'll find next week in chapter 16, a lot of the content of 16 is a bunch of names. And yet I think Kevin will show us not to dismiss that quick list of names too quickly. There's some gems in there. But uh, Paul's going to start to kind of summarize. He's going to reach back to a lot of things we've talked about. Uh, I don't have time to do a summary of the book. You can listen to the first section on this where I kind of did that going forward. And hopefully if you've been in attendance, you're going to pick up on some of those things. Uh, but before we uh, read, Kevin, would you mind opening us in prayer? Father God, uh, we thank you that yet again you have called us as uh, your community, your church, to come and hear from your word and to worship you. We ask that you bless all that we do here at Springfield. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm actually going to start with that summary. So could someone read verses 22 to 33 for us? We'll start at the end of the chapter. 15, chapter 15, verse 22. My bad. To the end. 22 to the end. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, and will leave for Spain by way of you. Know that when I come to you, I will come with the fullness of the blessing in Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God in my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, 
so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Uh, one thing I've been doing lately, which I've done at different times in my life in my Bible reading, is trying to read books all at once. Really listen to them as I drive. And I think that's really helpful. I mean, we need, we need everything, right? We need, we need to parse down verses. Um, our sermons are typically exegetical through just a few verses. And then we need the breadth and the gamut at times. And one thing I, I said in the chapter one here is Romans is so full of doctrine and it's, it's so important to us. It's been so important in, in the history of the church and Protestantism that if we, sometimes if we just kind of chunk it up to the big doctrinal themes, we can miss a lot of this real personal interconnectivity that it, it's really important and really neat. And I think these verses have some of those in them. And, and we won't open them up very much, but I just want to point some things out. And if we read chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, you'd see a lot of parallels here. He started the letter talking about, I've so often been hindered from coming to you. I long to see you. And now we're getting a little more understanding of why he hasn't been able to do that because of his ministry and his calling. Uh, Paul is an amazing man. And, you know, his, the amount of ministry, the, the, the way he's focused on ministry and, and what he's willing to go through and submit himself to is truly incredible. Here he's longed to see them. It's a very good longing. You could say he had every right to go visit, uh, these Christians. And yet, God keeps calling him. He keeps opening doors and closing doors. Even now, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to be persecuted. You know, he, there was a, a prophecy that we read in Ephesians. He's going to get persecuted, which is one reason he's praying for deliverance. And yet now, finally, he has a chance to go visit them. It's a little funny to me that it's only because it's on his way to Spain. <laughs> I'm only going to see you because you're a nice stepping stone for my further ministry. But I just love the fact that he presumes he presumes on the fact that they'll welcome him, that they'll love him and encourage him, that they'll want to see him, and he presumes on the aid that they'll give him. And I just think that tells us a lot about what it is to be in the church and the kind of presumption we ought to have as brothers and sisters. Even into chapter 16, verse 2, he talks about uh, receiving a sister in the faith and giving her whatever she's going to need from you. You know, as, as a strong body of believers... That's the kind of stuff we should be presuming on each other. We're all in this together, which we'll see. Um, as much as he was focused on gospel ministry, willing to give his life clearly, um, he does see the need for an encouragement. And that's a good lesson for us as well. That We do need to take those times. Even Jesus left the crowds to pray. Um, and so as we go through our gospel labors, don't be, don't be a Martha just runs and burns out because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Uh, there's a balance there that we could talk about, but won't. There's also something in there that would be neat to open up, uh, just the, the relationship between spiritual and physical blessings. You know, he says, it's right that they, they're giving this physical aid to the saints in Jerusalem. Because they, they've shared in spiritual blessings from them, so they ought to give physical blessings in there. I can think of passages like James 2 and 1 John 3, where there, there is a presumption, if you love your brother and you have earthly goods, you ought to be giving it to your brother. Don't just say, go warm, be filled, and, you know, go in peace, brother. Give them the things needed for the body. So this would be one of those passages you could turn to. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but again, try to read through books at, at times and, and think of the big picture. A lot of these letters were meant to just be read in one sitting. And so make sure you do that. 
All right, well, let's go back up. We're going to deal um, more of the doctrinal content. Uh, let's go ahead and um, I will read the first few verses of 14 and then these seven verses of chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Down to 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but that is as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. <clears throat> for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God the Father. So we see that uh, this kind of bracketed here, this call to welcome one another because Christ has welcomed you. God has welcomed your brother. And it concludes here that welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And the Christian life is very much, uh, as the body is lived out, we, we ought to see a, a body that's really in harmony, at peace with one another. We are a single body, equal members of that body with one head over us. And so it doesn't make sense in the church when there's quarrels and squabbles. That doesn't mean there's not disagreements, sometimes serious ones. But the way we understand those disagreements and deal with them, and the, the way we look at our brother is very telling of where our heart is and how much we understand the gospel and how much we understand Christ as our head. Uh, just a quick summary of last week. You know, as, as we're living in harmony and we, we care about these things and, and if we have the big picture of, of Christ in the world and what he's doing in the church and also in the world, we'll see. Um, when we have disagreements, the, the way we treat our brother and think about uh, about our brother um, ought, ought to be in a sense that I love my brother and I want the best for him. And I want, as, as we're looking out for the best of each other, I want the best for our church and for our body. And so there are going to be differences in our understanding of, uh, of both of doctrine, of truth, and of things that Paul here calls opinions. And, and Tim talked last week about maybe column A and column B kind of issues that we need to kind of understand maybe things that we might call truth and then opinions. And so as we grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, we, we need to do our best to understand, okay, what's in this category? What are, what are things that we need to hold to? And it would be wrong to deny and even wrong not to discuss in the right spirit. But what are things that are not so clear that we as Christians, even strong Christians, will disagree with. Now, he brings up the language of strong and weak. And I wouldn't say that that's about being strong in your faith or weak in your faith in the sense that you're, you're, you're able to please God or not. Paul's very clear. The strong brother and the weak brother are both able to please God. But that, that pleasing God or that obedience to God, based on where they understand their conscience, might look different. 
And so there's going to be a variety of how we live our life and what that's going to look like. And my brother and I might live our lives in a way that is different in certain ways. And that's okay. And you have to know where you are in this and be true to that. To To those who are strong, to those who have knowledge, to understand their freedom in Christ, good for you. Enjoy that freedom. Thank God for that freedom. And keep it to yourself. And for those who are weak in the faith that say, yes, I see, Paul's telling me I can eat meat, I get it. But if I eat it, I'm just filled with doubts. I'm filled with concerns and I'm not glorifying God. Then don't. Don't eat it and give thanks to God. That's okay. Now it all sounds nice and easy, but we didn't have time to talk about some of the real practical challenges. I thought of at least two big ones. Um, and these would be great for you to discuss in your families, over lunch today. Our community group is going to discuss this today. Um, because this looks so easy to do. But how do you do it? Number one, how do you decide what's in this column and this column, right? Christians are going to disagree about that. You know, if, if someone says, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that on a Sunday because that's the Sabbath. And I, in my mind, that might be a, a, an area of opinion. Well, Scripture doesn't say if I can go out to eat or not, right? But in, in, in that brother's mind, this is, this is a true thing. They, they could very potentially be truly trying to love me and keep me from sin. And so that, it, it doesn't, it's not that easy, right? Because we'll actually disagree on what's in, in which column and, and how do you determine that. Now, in some of our Sunday schools, uh, in my first John study and Dan Jensen's Trinity study, we kind of talked about this concept of of doctrinal truths. As you as you further get out, you kind of have a broader view. So you might have atheists and broadly theists and nominal Christianity out here. And as you hone in, you become a real narrow guy that only you have your certain views. But so we might say something like, um, you know, maybe this line is is PCA, a certain denomination. So we have a certain set of beliefs that we've chosen to to use as our standard of teaching and practice. So we don't sit there and squabble every week, right? So we have some like-mindedness. But we don't, we don't assume this is like the, I'll call it the red line, I guess. You know, this is the real important one. This, this is the truth that all Christians might, might share. True believers who have the Spirit, who have been taught by the Spirit, not that gaining and not, growing in knowledge gains salvation in any way, but someone who has the Spirit, there is a set of truths that we would expect them to have. They believe that Jesus has come in the flesh. We, we believe in the Trinity. Things like that. We would, we would expect all Christians to be in that camp. And then out here we might have more things like the cults or broadly theists, just religious people or something like that. And we've talked in the past about kind of knowing where that line is in, in what we would accept to, to have fellowship. Because in this circle, we'll, we're talking about the church. We're talking about chapter 14. We're talking about fellowship. Out here we're talking about evangelism and missions. Um, so kind of knowing where that line is as best as we can is important. I don't even know if the idea of truth and opinions belongs on this kind of a chart. If it does, it's somewhere in here, right? We're, we're, when we're talking about this column of truth, truth and opinions, we're talking about these are all believers, right? These are all in the red circle. And we're just trying to love each other and love God in a way that promotes peace and promotes the gospel. Um, I'm going to say one more on that. I'm sure I'll remember in a second. Oh, and maybe what you want to do here is have an A1 column and an A2 or an A3. 
Because when you, I think when you talk about maybe the primary issues, like the Apostles' Creed, things that are absolutely essential, um, that, that is defined by this red line, and maybe, you know, things are more here, more the dominational baptism or whatever, your exact view of covenant theology. I would not put things like baptism, even, even though they're secondary issues, even though they shouldn't divide us as Christians, I would not call those opinions. I don't think there's any problem with, in the right spirit, in the right amount of time you spend on it. Obviously, the more over here, the more time you, you, you concern yourself with it, right? It's not wrong to say, I'm going to try to teach my brother on his view of baptism. That's not, that's not squabbling over an opinion. Now, if he doesn't hear you, then you might want to stop. But I, I wouldn't confuse those, those areas. Here we're talking more about how you live. You know, do you choose to eat meat? Do you choose to watch a certain type of movie? Do you choose to drink? Those type of things. That doesn't take away all the confusion, but I think it helps some. The second biggest question I have is, here Paul is addressing groups, and he wants you to know if you're strong or you're weak. But who on earth is going to admit that they're weak, right? Because basically, if I, if, if, if I think these are truths that I'm dealing with, I don't consider them as opinions, right? That's a challenge. But it seems to me that someone would see themselves as weak. Um, but it almost seems like if you have the knowledge, yes, I have freedom in that area, then now I have the knowledge to be a strong brother. But that's not necessarily true. And so we need to be very prayerful about trying to determine. And I would, I would think that there are areas in your life where you're the strong and other areas where you're the weak. Just be very clear about your motivations. Am I doing this because everybody else does it? I look up to so-and-so and he drinks and smokes. Um, and so then I ought to. It's not about that. It's not about comparing yourself. How, how can you live your life and run the race unhindered by anything for the glory of God? Because you want to please him. It's not about how you look and how you're accepted in your group. It's none of that. And if we find ourselves comparing ourselves to our, or to our brother, you've lost the plot. You've completely lost it. You've lost the picture of being in a body with one head and of every joint and ligament grows together. What, what, your question shouldn't be, what can I do and not do? That's not the focus, at least. It's what in my behavior, in my, in my attitudes, will promote peace and promote the gospel? Well, in chapter 15, verse 2, Paul talks about not just loving your brother, but loving your neighbor. So now we're talking about your neighbor, the world. Those who aren't necessarily in your church. So basically, you could walk right through chapter 14 and apply everything he said about the body. Not, not everything. There are things you couldn't apply to the world. But there's lots there that you could just go ahead and just now think about your relationship with your neighbor and the world. So let me walk through some of those. Talks about living in peace and harmony. We have lots of scriptures about living in peace in this world. Walking in love. Building him up. Again, very similarly to what you would do in the church, now think about your neighbor. How will I act and behave inside of my neighbor? What is good for the gospel? Our, our neighbor may not have bowed the knee to Christ yet, may not call him Lord, but he will. There's going to be a day that every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess. And God is going to judge everybody. Everybody's going to stand before the judgment seat of God. So have that in view as you determine what you're going to do in front of your neighbor. What will help 
my neighbor, see my good deeds and glorify God on the day of uh, salvation. First uh, Peter 2.12. What, what is helpful to the gospel? And what is harmful to the gospel? Don't get in this mindset of, but it's my rights and it's my freedom. Uh, what will promote, and, and again, you in your context, with your conscience of the specific neighbor might look one way in your context, and your brothers to their neighbors might look different. And so there's a lot of decisions to make here. Prayerfully consider these. A um, couple of specifics on there. Now, chapter 14 talks about doing things from faith. Well, your neighbor can't do anything from faith if, if they're not a believer. Nothing they do is from faith. So this is my, a practical challenge I have is, how do you promote righteousness and God's truth when your neighbor stumbles upon it in a way that is good? Because you want to promote righteousness and, and, and push down unrighteousness, but that doesn't produce them to be Pharisees and, and, and self-centered. For instance, I'm a, a manager for my son's soccer teams. Um, we have a couple Mormon players that won't play on Sunday. And the coaches and other parents squabble. Ah, they don't care about the team as if their team should be more important than their families. So I want to honor them. Good for you. You're standing up for what you believe. You care about your family. You care about church. Sometimes they put me to shame in some of those things. And yet I say that to a Mormon who is, who is living very legalistically and trying to, to earn their salvation. Um, how, how, do, how do I speak in a way that encourages them but doesn't in the wrong direction? And I don't, I don't have the answers. Um, but I guess just really think about how that conversation would go and how you would encourage them. Um, and maybe some of you have some good examples of that. Um, I, this is going to sound a bit self-serving, but uh, when I was a new believer in college, I had to make the decision before I turned 21 if I was going to be a drinker. Because I had saved in a charismatic church, but by now I was reformed. But I really did, I think, have these principles in mind. Um, and, you know, I had friends who did one or the other. Back in chapter 14, verse 17, ended up being kind of a watershed for me. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I honestly, legitimately reasoned, it was far better for the gospel for me to drink than not drink. Because I didn't want to be compared to people that I just... I don't want Christ to be defined as the person who doesn't drink. I thought that was way worse for the gospel. Now, someone else in another context, I thought that if I ever got stationed in the South, because I'm from Arizona, everything goes, right? In the South. Well, if I ever get stationed in the South, I won't drink, because the culture. Thankfully, I changed my mind before I was stationed there, because that would have been awful. Uh, another last point on this. I have a family member who just loves to argue about politics. Just. It's caustic. He doesn't want to talk about anything else, so do I go ahead and entertain that? I've just found I just avoid it. What's the point? His views are so loony and so ridiculous. But what, what would that do for the gospel? Who cares if he came to my side? How do I know that my positions are right in the first place? Who cares? I, now, you might have a friend where discussing politics would be great and fruitful, and you could get to the whole idea of what is God and what is government and you know what's the point of this world. But again... Think about your relationships with the world, very much like uh, relationship with your brother in chapter 14. And what is helpful to the gospel? And what is a hindrance to the gospel? Yes.
Exactly right. That's a great point. Right. Exactly right. These are not easy questions. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Amen. Amen. All right, can someone read verses uh, 8 to 23? Made sentence is always good. Um, so back to verses 8 and 9. Paul tells us that Christ came for two reasons that he's focusing on here. Number one, he wants to show that God is truth is truthful. He's a promise-keeping God. Number two, he wants to bring the Gentiles in faith to, in order to glorify God. Bring the Gentiles to obedience, as he says. It seems a little weird to me as I kind of read through this. Verse 8, this whole idea of the promise of the patriarch seems a little out of place to me. Because he hasn't really talked this way since chapter 11. He's been talking about the unity of the body very much in this church, the Jewish-Gentile type of issues, um, specific liberty issues that they would go with. He's going to go on and talk, basically kind of show a lot about his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, and it's just kind of like, what are you doing with that verse, Paul? Um, back in chapter 11, the first last time we kind of talked like this, as regards the gospel, they, the, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So I just asked a couple of questions here. 
What, what do God's promises to the patriarchs have to do with the Gentiles? What do they have to do with world missions? Um, he says that he's, in verse 8, he's, Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. I, I don't know if I know all exactly what that means. We know that he had to be a Jew. He was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Uh, he came to the Jews, he came to his own, and they didn't receive him. But as many received him, he gave the right to become children of God. We know, we're going to get to Hebrews 9, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus had to be a Jew. The Messiah had to be a Jew, or he couldn't save Jews. He had to be born under the law, die under that law, so that those who were cursed by the law could now be saved. By, by his shed blood. Okay, so what does that have to do with the Gentiles, right? What does this have to do with, with Gentiles who were never under that law? Um, obviously, there's just exactly what law they're under, but um, how all's tied together? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. And we see in Acts, as af- at, after um, Jesus dies and is raised, that the gospel starts there in Jerusalem, and to all of Judea, and then eventually the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, if you go all the way back to the promise of the patriarchs, God promised Abraham a, a land, a people, it would be specifically a nation. But one thing we don't always talk about, and one thing they definitely missed, they got the land and the people part right, were the God's chosen people. They were called to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. Uh, Paul cites this in Galatians 3. It says that uh, in them, in, in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul calls that the gospel in Galatians 3. That Abraham knew that part of, part of his calling and his seed's calling ought to have been uh, to all the families of the earth. How they missed that, I don't know. It's, it's all over the place. And and Paul lists several of these verses here, right? He's quoting from the Old Testament saying, the Gentiles were always part of the plan of God. He goes on in Galatians 3 to say that those of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham and to his seed was always meant for the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Gentiles were always in view of the promises. This goes right along with Romans 4 that we looked at. The purpose was to make Abraham the father, number one, of all who believed without being circumcised, that's the Gentiles, so that righteousness would be counted to to them as well. And number two, to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise was, again, in Romans 11, the promise was always going to be through faith. There were, there were aspects of that promise. Jews, Jews enjoyed the many covenantal promises and in the land and, and, and a people. But the ultimate, the ultimate promise, the ultimate fulfillment of these things was always going to be by faith and therefore to everyone who had faith. Romans 11, uh, Dan drew a great picture, but never got to it in his Romans 11. This is going to be worse than yours, brother. It's, I was really looking forward, some kind of an olive tree with branches. It looked like a pine cone. 
We should have had Mark draw it. Anyway, we read it but didn't deal specifically with it. When you get to Romans 11, I see this in the same vein. So you have these natural branches that Paul says were broken off because they don't have faith. And then you have these unnatural branches added to them, the Gentiles, because they have faith. And the warning there is you need to be a believer, stay a believer, persevere, or you too will be broken off. And if you know if these broken off branches ever believe, they're going to be grafted back into this tree. So um, there's lots of ways you might define this olive tree, but essentially I think you can look at it as the covenantal promises of God. The promises given to the patriarchs. That the Jews, he, Jesus came to his own. If they would have accepted him as Messiah, they would have continued and, and understood all those fullnesses. But it's, at some point, this, you know, faith is, was always going to be the goal here. And so there's no two ways to go. There's one olive tree. There's one path of salvation. We're not talking about, and there are still so many people who believe that just the Jews as, because God, they'll, they'll turn to 15.8 and say, God keeps his promise to the patriarchs. So Jews are good. They don't have to believe even. They'll go that far. I mean, Paul is so far away from that doctrine. And there, there's some mystery there. there, there and we would all have disagreements on some of these finer points. But the point is, faith uh, is what binds you to the Messiah. To the Messiah, the seed, the physical seed of Abraham that came and fulfilled all the law of God. He was the perfect Adam. He was the perfect Israel. He did it all. And he, he knew of this, this light to the Gentiles. Faith in that seed, as he says in Galatians 3, that, that's our path to inherit the promises given to the patriarchs. These aren't two different sets of promises here. In fact, and if, and there's the, the mystery, this was a mystery. Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This was a mystery that they're fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So no matter where you are in some of these particulars, our focus is the gospel. And whatever you believe about Romans 11, what all Israel means, if there's going to be a big influx of, of physical Jews or not, if it's going to happen, it's going to be through the gospel, right? And if I'm preaching the gospel, and if, if you have Dan's view and, and he doesn't see that in Romans 11, I don't think he's going to be too disappointed if all of a sudden a lot of Jews start believing the gospel, right? It, it's not so crucial. Yeah, Tim? Oh, man. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, there it is. That's huge. And we're going to get to Hebrews 8, um, which cites Jeremiah 33 about the new covenant. Well, notice that the new covenant was promised to who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's no mention in that passage of the Gentiles and and the families of the earth and the nations. So, how, how are we appropriating that new covenant to Gentiles? Well, this is it, right? The, the, yeah, that covenant went to them, and then to the seed, and out to everybody else. Okay. Um, I'm just going to say a few things, because I do want to leave some time for discussions on 
We, and we've talked about this in a long, you're talking 10 plus years ago. I think we went through the Let the Nations Be Glad, a video series, uh, a book by John Piper on missions. But, um, you know, caveat, I've been very influenced by him on missions. But basically, when Paul talks about his specific ministry, it's really interesting. Um, so we're going back down to like verse 17 and follows. Uh, and it's always hard when you read the scriptures in, in a narrative, in a sense. It's not narrative, but he's, he's telling a narrative. You know, when you have Paul has a ministry, it's hard to know, well, that should be our ministry. Is that my specific? Is our church? It's a, it's a little tough to know how unique maybe Paul's ministry was, but, um, so I'm sure we can debate some of these details, but, but let me just kind of throw it out there. What I see is he talks about, um, so he, Paul's calling was to go where Christ was not known. He, he, he went all to all these places. He didn't want to build on someone else's foundations. Does that mean we shouldn't build on someone's foundations? Well, Paul went to Crete for a year and then he left elders, right? Were the elders building on Paul's foundation? No. Paul was a missionary. Um, and elders have a different role. Um, so Paul's ministry was to go where Christ was not known. Um, maybe the door was shut. Maybe he left the city. Maybe he, a few believers came. He raised elders. He taught them and he left. Sometimes he stayed in a place a long time like Ephesus. Sometimes it was, it, it was all over the place. And it's just quite an amazing statement for him to make. I think it's verse 23 where he says, I don't have any more work here. Like, what? I mean, the number of Christians would have been so small. An abysmal. How do you not have work, Paul? Certainly, if, even if you have a church here, five miles away, there's another town. No, that Paul's ministry was unique in that. Um, that's what God called him to. Now he's going to another place, to Spain. Um, he calls it, let's see which verse, he calls it the ministry, verse 23. So he's talking about his, his calling. We see elsewhere where he contrasts himself with Peter as the apostle of the Jews. He's apostle of Gentiles. So he has a specific ministry. But I find it interesting in verse um, 19, he calls it the ministry of the gospel. Now, I don't know if he means something different by that. Maybe he means my ministry of the gospel is this way. But I think there's a, a lot that you can piece together in scripture that our, the church ought to be in the business of reaching unreached people groups, of reaching people who, where Christ has not been named. Now, that won't be all of us doing that, right? But we, we as a church, that's, that ought to be a very strategic specific um, ministry of ours. And and we don't, you know, you talk about the, all the families of the earth. You go to Revelation 5, where every tribe, tongue, nation are there at the altar. So if there's a tribe, tongue, nation who, do, who doesn't know the gospel, we need to get the gospel to them. And not everyone agrees with this. Um, but I do believe that as, as we think and strategize, it's not a matter of being efficient Oh, we're a lot more efficient. We all live here, right? This would be a lot more efficient. There are many people in Las Vegas who don't know Christ. So why don't we keep our money and do that more? It'd be, you know, a lot be better. It takes 10 years to learn a language and learn a culture somewhere. Why would we waste that kind of time? So consider it. I we can discuss it. I just want to throw it out there. I, I think when Paul talks about, um, the ministry, this is, this is a ministry of the gospel that we need to protect as a church. In Romans 10, he talks about those who will go. And, and how will they go unless they're sent? So we're, we're all somewhere in that chain. Um, there's debate on exactly, you know, the word missionary is not in the scriptures. Some people think it's the continuation of apostle as a messenger. Some would say the evangelist is that. And yet Paul tells Timothy as a pastor to do the work of an evangelist. So there's differences there, exactly what somebody would see. Um, 
in Acts 13, when Paul is called, he's already working in local ministry. And this, the Holy Spirit comes and says, separate Paul and Barnabas for me. So he was, he was separated for a particular work, but as one who's already active in the church and demonstrating his gifts. Uh, Matthew 28, we're to baptize and disciple all the nations. So I don't want to go too far with that, but th- this is a good passage to, to talk about some of those things. So with the time remaining, I think I'll just open it up. If you want to hit one of those juicy topics or just maybe you have a specific situation in your own life that you found helpful as you've thought through how to re- relate to uh, someone in the world with the issue of liberty or talk about missions, uh, whatever you guys want to talk about here with the, like, about five, ten minutes we have. Yes. We already had one. <laughs> With no other hands. Um, I was just going to say, you know, the seventies they went out and they they evangelized. They were very successful, I do believe, because God made the ground fertile. God put it in their hearts. God uh, uh, gave them what to say and how to do it because there was such a pronounced love of God in them that they could not help but to reach out and be compelled to do just that which God has called them to do. And as we step out in faith, we are gifted and given these things that are not from us, thank God, but from God. Yeah, and we, we see different callings. We, we see some prophets who will be told no, and they won't listen, and yet it's their ministry. We see those who are water and those who have the increase. And I'm sure we see that um, in church history where there was probably a work of the gospel that didn't see a lot of fruit and, and, and God orchestrated things to see fruit. Mark? This kind of hits both on the missions and the concept of youth versus attendance, but I think it's rather ironic that the pastor who preached at Prince Harry's wedding yesterday is part of the American Anglican Communion, which has been basically expelled from the worldwide, particularly in the African So you kind of see missions just kind of, you know, now it's, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's, you know, and that's kind of interesting to see where, where the gospel is, is working. And, uh, so I don't know, it is a big question. I, I don't disagree with you on that concept of efficiency. And, yeah, and don't presume that, because our country might have been the sender, it's a, we're not going to be the sent twos. Uh, and don't need to be. Yeah. One of the uh, motivations behind the PTA's establishment of Reformed University Fellowship at major college universities is missions. Because there they have an opportunity to reach the nation and be in the Right. After they, they graduate or whatever. But it's not the only strategy for missions. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Man, you're right. There's a quote in the post. Galatians 3, yeah. Right. Right, and Paul used language like in Ephesians 3 that we are the circumcision who 
who worship by the Spirit of God. The whole language of Israel and circumcision has changed, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Amen. It's not us. Well, when we're doing things in our own strength, Francis Schaeffer is a guy that some people will remember. Who and Charles Colson was the guy that became a Christian who was born again and and uh, had been a corrupt character and then became a Christian who wrote books. Francis Schaeffer said to Colson, "There's a great need in our nation, but every need is." Well, let's take a, a warning from this discussion that you could have the best doctrine in the world, right? And have the, some of these really important things. And it could be completely destroyed by your personal relationships and your judging brother. Maybe, maybe we're more vulnerable to that. Because the, the more we care about doctrine, which is a good thing, the more this can become an issue, right? So let, let's pray that that doesn't happen. Let's, let's conduct ourselves in a way that promotes the unity of the body. Yeah, one more, and then Guy can pray for us. Uh, one, one of the things that I think is important when you're talking about Sorry. doctrine, a lot of times what I notice is that sometimes you say doctrine and you actually hide behind it. I don't know if it's talking about, for example, the structure of politics, but I, but 
we've got the doctrine, but how do we know the doctrine works? Or if you're teaching doctrine, how do I know it actually works in your life? Because what I know is people have doctrine, but there's actually a humanist type of mentality that's governing their life. It's quite an example. Sure. Yeah, it has a huge impact. Right, and that, that's why we need to be in community. Because you'll, you'll just live in your own little world, your own little echo chamber, and never be challenged on those things. Never have iron sharpening iron. And never be challenged. And it, the, I mean, that says a lot of, when we're in community, it's not just meeting and eating, right? Hopefully you're asking penetrating questions. As you build a relationship and are able to be more blunt, what are you reading? What's going on in your life? And, and without that kind of community, you're not going to know some of these underlying philosophies. Guy, could you close us, please? Amen.